right, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is John Flavin. John is the founder of Portal Innovations, which is a really interesting and new platform for seeding biotech companies. They're based in Chicago, but John is thankfully here with us in the studio in New York today here at PT Network. So, John, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. Yeah, uh, and, and glad you're here in person. I, I was telling John before we started speaking like that it is always such a better interview when the guest is here uh, in person because I know that he's in Chicago. I was like, all right, one of these Zoom type things. I'm like, here you are. So much, much better. Not working remote today. Yeah, thrilled to have you here. So um, I have lots of questions for you, but let's just start so that the listeners are kind of caught up. Explain the underlying model of Portal Innovations, how you came up with it, what you're doing, where things stand. Yeah, well, Portal came about really, you know, as a culmination uh, of my career. I've been, you know, a biotech entrepreneur for the last 20 plus years. Um, and in building biotechnology companies in Chicago, I had to kind of create my own ecosystem. We had mm -hmm. to build our own labs, had to figure out how to comply with, you know, uh, regulations, had to hire uh, employees with scientific backgrounds, had to raise capital. Most of that capital came from the coast. Yeah. And um, through that journey, you know, learned about the challenges that go with building a biotechnology company. Any entrepreneurial endeavor is challenging and risky, as we know, but a biotechnology company build um, is special in the sense that, you know, you need special infrastructure to be able to uh, advance your research activities to get a new drug to the marketplace. So what I observed, you know, through that journey was, you know, if the innovator has access to the right infrastructure, the right seed capital, and then a community, people that know what to do to build a biotechnology mm -hmm. company, you could de-risk that and create a more sustainable portfolio of companies. So I was very motivated to try to, uh, in my next stage, uh, taking my serial entrepreneurial path where I had taken three companies public right. and try to build a portfolio. And scale it, right. Mm -hmm. so, so it's interesting because th there's the studio model, which is in a way what you're describing, right? Always seems very logical to me, right? Because you're saying, look, we can have efficiencies of scale, we can cut off, a lot, cut out a lot of back office expenses, we can provide different people, all those things. And yet, interestingly, within the VC community, um, investors are always a little reluctant to invest in startups coming out of studios, in part because the cap table is always a little screwy, um, but also in part because I think they feel like um, track record is not as good as they'd like it to be. Um, Tell me what you like about it, and then tell me, do, do you agree with any of the concerns or criticism about the model? Well, I think whenever you form a, a new platform like Portal, um, people kind of want to put you in a box. So studio, incubator, accelerator are mm -hmm. terms that people use to try to be proxies for ultimately what we're trying to do at Portal, which I would say is slightly more nuanced. We think of ourselves really as a venture capital firm mm -hmm. that happens to have access to fully equipped laboratory space. So we're running a venture model, which is very different than kind of some programmed accelerator right, tech stars, that we're right. done and you know they graduate out. We're 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 simply using the the physical infrastructure as a vehicle that's required to do a biotechnology company at the early stage. Right. Um, but it's all those other things that go into it, building the team, de-risking the technology, and then ultimately we go from seed through series A, setting up the stage so that other investors want to continue to co-invest with us. And the other nuance there too is that we're not blindly bringing in companies and then hoping that we shepherd them out to the world and the VCs like to work with them. We're bringing VCs, corporate partners in to the seed round. And so we're really, think of us more as a, a living uh, development infrastructure yeah. where we're making investments in companies. Lab space and the studio concept happens to be 
maybe the closest proxy to what we're trying to do. Yeah. So how many companies any given time can you guys, do you guys work on? Well, that's, yeah, we're, we're really focused on the first 18 to 24 months of life. Okay. Um, we launched the platform two years ago. Uh, we've got 50,000 square feet of space. We're now full. We've got 34 companies. Um, of those 34, we've made seed investments in 12 of those companies. What's the typical check size of your right? Um, around $500,000, but right. then we're typically leading with um, family offices and other VCs, uh, five to $7 million seed round. Got it. Seed round. Yeah, Correct. Total. Okay, so that's a pretty meaningful amount. It, explain to the listeners and even to me a little bit the distinction and the way that you need to raise money for a biotech company com compared to sort of a consumer tech company in terms of the amount of capital. Well, it's a capital intensive journey. So right. when we think about, you know, the end game ultimately is to, you know, go from typically the, you know, the innovator usually is in a university, University of Chicago, Northwestern, whatever the case might be, Harvard. Um, and that intellectual property gets spun off. That initial seed funding is typically where we get engaged. Um, but that's just day one of a long, very expensive journey to get a drug to the market. It can cost upwards of $300 million to get all the way to the market. So the way that you fund a biotechnology company is more like a relay race. It's not a marathon. You are looking at de-risking the technology from seed to series A to series B mm -hmm. to C and then IPO or M&A. And, and, usually, and usually the exit tries to be sort of after the C as opposed to now, like consumer tech companies going with a series G or H these days or something ridiculous yeah. like that. And I would say more recently, although this was worth seeing as more of an anomaly, if we look at the public biotech markets today, you know, uh, 20 and 21, you know, were historic, you know, uh, bull run in, in biotech, um, a more normalized market is seeing where companies are not going necessarily from A, B, and then right into the IPO, which was what was happening yeah. to now needing a C and then getting into the IPO thereafter. Yeah. Was, was the biotech world affected by the SVB thing as well? Or were you guys pretty much immune from that? Absolutely. No, right in the center of the storm. I mean, I think uh, obviously it was more of a macro events that were causing, you know, the ultimate trigger for what happened with SVB. But, you know, it had, they had a very concentrated base of depositors, uh, VCs in biotech, yeah. Yeah. as well as uh, companies that were very much affected by what happened right. with SVB. So what, what was it like for you? Those Did you guys have your own account? We SVB? had exposure. Yeah. Right. So so it's Thursday afternoon. Yeah. Peter Thiel's telling everyone to pull out. Right. Social media is going crazy. Yeah. I, I know what, what my life was like. Yeah. What was yours like that day? It was it was a terrifying run, to be honest with you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because it was not only you know us being in the middle of it, but we were trying to help our portfolio companies right. at the same right. time. And naturally, you know, you're always, you know, seeing from your own personal perspective that why wouldn't the Fed step in? Of course, that's going to happen. Right. But you don't really know that that's yeah. going to be the case and really didn't become certain until no, that Sunday evening. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. We were there was that really oh shit moment of and it was less about look, we, we certainly had money sitting in the account and it would have sucked if we lost that money. Mm -hmm. But we would have advertised. Likewise. Time. Yeah. Would have been OK. Yes. We had some portfolio companies that probably if they'd lost all that money, wouldn't have made payroll. And if all of a sudden, if enough of your meaningful portfolio companies go under, then there's no way your fund can succeed, right? Yes, so there exactly. was that holy shit moment. Yeah. We had a, because we've got a little bit of a line into regulars and Washington and all that, you know, the sense that at least we had throughout the process was what did happen was what would happen. But, you know, it's politics, right? You, you've been in around politics for a long time. Like yeah. weird shit happens yes. all the time. Yeah. For a lot, for what seemed like illogical reasons, they're usually politically logical for somebody, but they're not substantively logical. Really? So you could have gone anywhere. And absolutely, and as you looked at it, as as rational as it seemed that you know they would step in, when you look when you were looking at what had to happen for that to occur, 
you know, getting sign off from several bodies of, of the government, you know, the Fed and, you know, yeah. votes that had to happen. It's not like one person says, no. I'm going to do this. It's a lot of things had to go right for that to actually, yeah, uh, be, it was the right move, but, you know, it, it, a lot could have gone wrong in that decision too. Right. And it's not even, it's not even where the president can just say like, this is what's going to happen because Powell doesn't really report to the president, yeah. right? Gets exactly. nominated by, confirmed by the Senate, but otherwise is, is somewhat independent. Yeah. So for, for my model as sort of an early stage VC, um, generally in and around consumer tech, but not CPG specifically, you know, there's that th- a third, a third, a third assumption, right? A third of our stuff's going to go to zero. A third will be somewhere between a one and a three X. And then a third need to be home runs with a couple of those being grand slams to get to a three to five X for the portfolio overall. Mm-hmm. How does it work in biotech? Yeah, I mean, you're, it, it's a riskier endeavor. Right, you know, you have sure. other kinds of risks that are later into it, FDA risk, clinical risk, scientific risk. Obviously, the deeper you go into, you know, preclinical and then into humans, phase one, two, three, you're de-risking all along that way. And again, those are those financing milestones that typically happen when you're getting data readouts that are showing the investor group that you're making progress, that you're much likely as you hit these milestones to have a drug that would be approved and be valued, val- valued in the market because it's it's curing patients. If you look at um, you know the the nature of a, a biotechnology portfolio, um, you know if you've got twenty investments, you know you're 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 hoping to see one to two of those really Brilliant. bring in the the full return for the fund. Right. Now it's not that all of those other investments will go to zero. Some will be some base hits. Right. But the risk profile is such that, you know, you're going to have a lot shake out, you know, from where you start, which is at a early lead identification with a thesis right. to getting through, you know, preclinical development and into humans. With a lot more variables that you probably can't completely control for, right? So with us, we invest in some sort of consumer tech company. And like, if we get it right on the founder and the TAM and the opening of the market, like, it, you know, things will obviously change every single day, but you can kind of see how it all plays out over time. And sometimes at least you're right. With you, there's all kinds of like the, just the science may be off, right? Mm-hmm. People may not react in clinical trials to the way that you expect them to. So you don't have as much control. So is it, is it extremely stressful to be kind of a biotech VC? I, you know, I'm, I tend to be an anxious person. I just, uh, my nature, <laughs> in my DNA. <laughs> yeah. um, and so that's why, you know, building a portfolio becomes important, right? right? And, and so, and that's the nature of the biopharma model since inception was just to try to have a, you know, a diversity of shots on goal, if you will. But yeah, no, it's a, it really is a, it's, it's a challenging journey. And there are a lot of things that you can predict and plan for. I mean, having a great team, having a team that maybe has done it before, you know, having the right partners that are helping you de-risk uh, from an investor syndicate perspective. I know we certainly look for who's investing alongside of us. And so those kinds of things set the stage just based on, you know, de-risking things that you can control for. But as you go along, you know, even with wild success in a, uh, a given, you know, therapeutic agent, you get to the end of that process. And what is the market like at that point in time? It's a long journey. could yeah. take eight to 10 years to go from idea all the way to the the patient in, right. in a commercial setting. So what's changed? And and will payers uh, reimburse at that point? So there's a lot of variables all the way to the very end, right. even with wild success in the in the clinic. Right. And, and changing social norms around kind of what should be reimbursed, what shouldn't be mm-hmm. reimbursed. Like I think we're in a world now where behavioral mental health is sort of getting easier mm-hmm. because people are starting to recognize, especially after COVID, yeah. the need to sort of treat that in the same way you treat physical health. But then other things might be less important. Let me give you our fund's theory towards biotech, and you tell me if we're thinking about this the right way or not, which is, you know, I, I think, as you know, we 
look at all the same stuff as every as you do in every real estate startup, right? Every VC, right? The TAM, the founder, the underlying idea, the underlying tech, and then we look at one: is there a gating regulatory issue or opportunity that, if it were solved, can really drive growth and valuation? And if so, too, can we solve it? And when the answer is yes to both, that's really what makes sense for our fund specifically to deploy capital. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons that we stay out of biotech, and part of it is that we just don't have the technical expertise, but part of it also is. While there's clearly a government process, right, a highly regulated process, from my perspective, it's so prescribed, and it's been around for a long time, and the biotech VCs understand what has to happen to get a drug from point A to point B to all the way through to approval, that I don't think we really have any meaningful advantage or arbitrage in the way that we do when all of a sudden, you know, scooters or fantasy sports betting gets banned in 32 states at the same time, and then we got to run it and build campaigns everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we kind of stay out of it in part because I think that regulatory arbitrage that usually works really well for us doesn't exist for us in biotech. Is that the right way to think about it? I think in general, you're you're correct um, with regards to that, you know, advantage that, you know, seasoned biotech investors will have that pattern recognition. I will, however, add that I think that science is moving very quickly. So new modalities are being presented now to the FDA. The dawn of cell therapies, gene therapies that are transformative in nature. When we think right. about a product like uh, Kim Raya that spun out of uh, Penn, um, you know, Carl June's lab, you know, not, not too long ago, it's curing leukemia patients, a once untreatable disease, a death sentence. And that same thing's happening in other therapeutic indications with new modalities that, frankly, are the protocols are not as well developed. And FDA is trying to understand how to develop the right review mechanisms so that these important drugs can get to the market, gene therapy being the same. I think rare diseases, for example, are areas where um, a regulatory know-how or influence um, will will have an impact. So if we were to look for opportunity, it'd be the weird stuff that the FDA isn't used to where some of the elements of the kind of political campaigns that we apply to legalizing our startups mm-hmm. might have a little more efficacy. Patient than advocacy. Than totally traditional. Be, yeah. Right. right. Yeah. That, makes, that makes total sense. Um, Chicago. Mm-hmm. So I let's just start out by saying I love the city of Chicago. I lived there for seven years. I went to school there. I think you know, Chicago is the best school in the country. I certainly worked in politics there, cared a lot about the city and the state when I was doing it. With all, and we have an office there, everything else. So the listeners know Bob Greenlee at this point pretty well. Bob is based there and his team. But with all of that said, I would argue that Chicago is not a tech hub. I would like it to be one, but I feel like there's this really problematic cognitive dissonance where people inside the city of Chicago think that it is. And as a result, um, they don't realize that it's not, and therefore the, whatever hard things need to be done in order to change that don't actually get done. Um, tell me why I'm wrong. Well, I don't think you're necessarily wrong in the way you're thinking about the way Chicago thinks about itself as a tech hub. I agree with you. In fact, in forming Portal, I was very intentional and have continued to be very intentional that we are a national platform that happens to be located in Chicago. Right. Um, we are plugging... Chicago into the global biotech grid. We are partners with ecosystems like Boston and the Bay Area. That's a different kind of mindset that historically has, I think, held innovation ecosystems back like Chicago because it ends up being more of an economic development zero-sum game in the eyes of uh, different parties that are trying to promote one sector over another. I think if you look at Chicago's beauty, it's as we've talked, as as is known, it's diversity in terms of the different industries yep. where there's focus. Yep. I think the advantage that you have in both tech and in biotech is that 
it's not in the typical hotspots. And so, you know, there's a lot of groupthink that happens in those typical hotspots, right? And there's a lot of advantage to density and, and, and thinking and collaboration, but getting outside of those areas of thinking with, you know, universities that are not in that particular ecosystem can drive tech and biotech. So I think that um, you're not necessarily wrong in the way you think about it from an outsider's perspective looking in. I think that I can speak more around biotech. I do believe that we're increasing our legitimacy as a young emerging ecosystem that is beginning to see evidence of viable investable opportunities. And I think a lot of this is being driven by the universities. If I go back 10 years, you know, UChicago, Northwestern, University of Illinois, and a lot of those big 10 universities yeah. got into the innovation arms race because they knew their economic model was changing. Yeah. So, you know, working closely with Bob Zimmer at University of Chicago sure. and building the Polsky Center, it was really clear to me that to maintain or grow the eminence of the University of Chicago, um, you need to attract and retain faculty that are innovative. And right. why is that? Because they have economic impact on the university. Yeah. You know, philanthropists want to fund them. You know, they can get translational grants. Right. Not only do they like to publish in Sciences and Nature, but they want to start a company around their idea. And right. that, that has economic right. value, the too. The tech transfer office is probably the most valuable part of some universities. It's, right? it's the tip of the spear. It can yeah. be a real value creation right. engine. And so the universities intentionally became engaged in that process with a goal to attract the MIT Stanford phenotype to the right. ecosystem. And so that was successful. Now there are what I would call Cambridge backable faculty in the ecosystem that otherwise would have to start their company in Boston, but and for fight, all intents and purposes, they could everything. do it right, right down the street. It, it's interesting. So like one of the reasons if we went into sort of why I would argue Chicago has not been a successful tech hub is so UIC is a great engineering school, right? However, one, I think most people listening to this don't necessarily know that, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have the reputation of an MIT or a Stanford. Mm-hmm. And two, Champaign's like a couple of hours away mm-hmm. from Chicago, right? So it's like, and U of C and Northwestern, while two of the best schools in the world, haven't really been these so far hubs that are just pumping out new types of, of, of technology that actually has a commercial utilization for it. Mm-hmm. Um, what has changed in your view that now makes the universities that are in the city itself um, in the game in a way that can be more helpful? Well, uh, again, from a from a uh, a backward looking perspective, everything you described is spot on. I think you've got to take a, a contrarian view as you look toward the future, um, because of the investments that the universities have made into these, you know, high performing, innovative faculty that only want to come or stay in an ecosystem, they've created that and invested into those types of people. Those types of people otherwise would be or have been at MIT and Stanford. They're now in the ecosystem. To me, that's the single biggest change that has made Portal viable at this point. So the influx of academic and research talent from the coast to Chicago, to schools, by the way, that people are proud to be affiliated with, right? Like, again, I would argue Chicago's the best school in the country, in my perspective. that's what changes the underlying dynamic that allows, at least in biotech, the potential for real success that we just haven't seen in, in regular consumers. Exactly. Because, I mean, if you look at the genealogy of kind of what caused Boston, what caused the Bay Area, you can trace a lot of the, you know, the successful companies in Boston. You know, people often cite Bob Langer. I mean, he's got many, many companies that have come out of mm. his laboratory that have been commercialized. Yeah. And so when these faculty come to an ecosystem, they're not one and done. They're annuity faculty. They keep cranking out new companies. My argument is that those faculty now exist in Chicago and their choice, uh, if we didn't have portal or a portal like enterprise there 
would be that they'd be getting funded, but their companies would be, you know, in Boston Somewhere or else. the Bay Area. Exactly. So the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, you know, was a venture capitalist before this. Uh, his sister Penny does some, some VC investing. Does that have an impact or not on sort of the ecosystem and the, and the success? And if so, like, what has J.B. done specifically that, that you can point to where he could say, okay, you know, I really do have this this background and it's provided these advantages because for a guy who's at least thinking about running for president, this is an argument that he'll need to be able to make. Yeah, absolutely. No, uh, JB has been a real champion for tech and biotech, yep. you know, and he's put his money where his mouth is in several instances, uh, including recently to support um, and chip into the Chan Zuckerberg um, award that was uh, recently announced uh, for Chicago not, not long ago, putting in $25 million. He's invested uh, $15 million into a fund to build out laboratory space, greatly needed infrastructure that was not available before. Um, he's a champion to bring in talent um, to the to the state. And he's laying the groundwork for with things like, uh, you know, the SBIR Magic program, where for startups, getting non-dilutive capital from the federal government, and then having the state match it is, is a huge advantage, you know, for companies that are getting spun up in the state. So he's been a huge champion for um, tech and biotech. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great to see that. So you're looking now, though, at other cities for Portal as well. Walk me through, before we get to specific cities, what, you know, you're, you're going around the country, you're thinking about it. What are the criteria you're looking for? Well, you know, you first look at um, what's the level of NIH funding that goes into a given okay. ecosystem. Uh, second, you know, what are the numbers of patents that have been filed, you know, across the collective institutions that are there? This also presupposes that there are institutions, that there are kind of biomedical driven academic medical centers that are in these particular ecosystems. Yeah. It has to be has to be there, has to be true. You're looking for uh, locations where um, even hyper locations within the city where it's a live, work, play environment, you know, density, proximity, those things all matter. So, you know, looking at those features and then we actually have come up with a, our own proprietary um, uh, AI driven tool called Stargaze, which allows us to use machine learning to plug in all the papers that have been published across all the universities in any given area. And we can, with Stargaze, pinpoint who are the faculty that are leading in that area and predictive algorithms that allow us to say that person is going to be the next Bob Langer in that particular ecosystem. So we look at that type of, yeah. you know, uh, density and power in a given area as we look at where's a good place for Portal to be located. And we try to look at it prospectively, not so much where has the city the been, past, right? exactly, it like Chicago. We're, right. So that's what I ask you, because you made a good argument, you know, a few minutes ago for... Chicago actually offering you a competitive advantage because it's not Boston or San Francisco and things sort of don't get so swallowed up into group thinking and everything else that they have more of an opportunity to kind of be heard and to break out in a place like Chicago. Does that logic apply to your sort of next cohort of cities as well? Are you thinking more like a Pittsburgh or a Cleveland as opposed to a, a New York or a Boston? Well, we're thinking on both levels. Okay. On one hand, you know, um, really excited uh, that we're going to be launching in Boston, in South Boston. Yeah. Any biotech enterprise yeah, needs right. to be connected to yeah. the money source, right? Yes, yes, yes. And so those friendships, those relationships are going to be key to not only the Boston companies we help support, but also, you know, the portal network companies in Chicago. Yeah. They're going to raise money in Boston. So having a physical presence here for those portfolio companies right. is going to be critical. There's only so much money you can raise. In so a little different thesis yeah. on the expansion there, yeah. but we're looking at and made an announcement, you know, uh, last year that we are going to be opening up a, a lab in uh, Atlanta. So okay. if you think about Atlanta, you've got a lot of those characteristics, 
the tons of NIH grant funding in the same right. kind of game of trying to recruit in this innovative faculty. Is Georgia Tech good at bioengineering too? Georgia Tech is uh, tops in yeah. bioengineering, okay. but they also have a joint program with Emory yep. and Emory on its own, you know, is very prolific Got it. in medicine, okay. particularly in, in, in viral uh, medicines, you know, right. again, kind of- Right, well, CDC is there, so. Exactly, course, yeah, but a lot of faculty too, so yeah. you maybe not other, uh, otherwise realize it, but you know, guys like uh, Dennis Leota. So Dennis came up with the first, uh, AIDS drug that today is used in 95% of the cocktails. He's gotten 17 drugs onto the marketplace. None of those companies are in uh, Atlanta. They had to go to other places. But he created probably you know $75 billion of value wow. from his research, much like you saw with Bob Langer and what yeah. he's done with Moderna and other, other companies. Yeah. So there are people like that that otherwise, if they have their choice, they'll be able to build in that ecosystem. So um, you've got uh, CDC, you've got the historically black colleges, you know, Morehouse School of Medicine, mm -hmm. Powerhouse, Georgia State uh, has, turns out, has a ton of NIH grants that go in there and a lot of talent coming out. So all the raw ingredients, it's a live, work, play environment. We're building in uh, West Midtown near Georgia Tech. Um, has the same kind of raw, gritty feel, almost like like here as well as, yeah, you know. We're in, in, look, looking out the window on Orchard <laughs> Street on a gloomy day in, in you know, the Lower East Side. Yeah, yeah definitely a little, a little gritty at the moment. And, and so we, we're looking at those emerging ecosystems because this thesis that, you know, all those research institutions like the ones we saw in Chicago are gunning for that same type of faculty. And yeah. if you look at the presidents coming into the top research institutions today, many of them have a startup and they're prioritizing innovation. And the reason they're prioritizing it is because of the economic impact it has not only on the university, but their surrounding ecosystem as well. Right. So Houston, we yeah. like Houston a lot. A lot of things happening there around Texas Medical Center. You know, you've got MD Anderson, right. uh, people like Jim Allison, Nobel laureate for his work in checkpoint inhibitors. So, and a hungry tran transformative group of presidents there that, you know, look at Rice, you know, the, the new president there, Reggie's, you know, has a company, he's an engineer. That, that is the new phenotype of the top research institution um, presidency. And Houston, we think, has a critical mass forward-looking to be a place that um, has a, a long-term sustainable, valuable, valuable ecosystem. So in, in New York, we now have this Cornell Technion campus on Roosevelt Island. I think Mike Bloomberg, in many ways, built it specifically for exactly the point you're talking about, which is we didn't have, just like kind of Chicago had the problem where UIC was a couple hours away, mm -hmm. Columbia and NYU, great schools, but not per se, great tech engineering schools. Um, are you seeing a difference in New York because of that? Or is it not really having much of an impact? Absolutely, no, I think uh, New York is on the map. And you know, I think what, what, what I think New York, where it currently stands right now is you have the beginnings of the infrastructure um, led by the project that you mentioned uh, yeah. early on, you know, the, the Technion and the Cornell campus. I think that was, a, that was the beginning of a movement that yeah. has now created the ecosystem that exists here today. The next step for the ecosystem, you got groups like uh, Deerfield, and they've got their own, you know, lab building, the Cure. Yep. Um, and so I think that New York, the challenge for New York will be given the, again, the diversity of the economy, yep. like Chicago, the attention that you know a, a biotech gets in Boston versus the New York or Chicago is to some degree uh, inhibitory, you know, toward a focus in, in a given ecosystem. However. I think the next step for New York are they're beginning the building blocks. Um, the question is, will they bring all those pieces together um, geographically or at least even just in concert for, for, through some, you know, uh, force where you have more density? Right now, I see it as being somewhat fragmented. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the one piece of good news if you're a New Yorker is, so obviously Mike Bloomberg understood all of this. He is a, he's an engineer. Mm -hmm. He's a tech entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. 
he he put a lot of stuff in, in play that a typical politician can't ever do. And then we had Bill de Blasio for eight years, who just hates tech. He hates business. He mm -hmm. hates capitalism. And a lot of the progress stalled. I think, mm -hmm. in fact, I think they had to like massively persuade him to even show up the, you know, ribbon cutting for right. the Cornell Tech now thing. It should be yeah. the proudest thing a mayor does. Of course. And then this new administration, the Adams administration seems to at least get the the value of developing biotech specifically in New York City and are pouring resources back into it. That's a really good point. And it's visible. And I, I didn't mention that as a criteria for cities that we're looking at. But having, a, again, a J.B. Pritzker or a Bloomberg that is championing it is a critical component because if you don't have that, um, or it's neutral or headwinds against, you know, that type of industry, you're, you're really, you're really going to stall. So right. I, I think that's a real critical component is having, you know, the, um, you know, the government support, um, even if it's in voice, you know, even if it's not dollars, just to champion the importance of the ecosystem oh, to a given city. Yeah. I mean, right. I mean, that's exactly right. So for example, now this isn't in biotech, but you have here in, in New York city, 50,000 people pay 50% of the local taxes, right? So the very wealthy people who are incredibly mobile, right? They could pick up tomorrow and move to Chicago or Florida or Texas or London if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. And you have this sort of tonal problem where the AOCs of the world are just excoriating them every day for being evil. And after a while, they're like, well, fuck this. Why do I need to keep taking, taking this heat here? But it works in both directions, right? So if you have a city hall, governor's office that is really saying, hey, you're valuable, you're wanted, we're going to try to really make everything work for you. It, it, it can go a really long way. Absolutely. I mean, I think the role in that sense, you know, where you've got, you know, your your chief, you know, cheerleader at the state or the city level, it's creating the conditions, right? I mean, there's 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 limitations for what the government can do, even if, especially if they're constrained from a financial perspective. But the reality is, um, messaging, positioning, and championing create conditions that start to help people feel welcome and supported and important in an ecosystem that is trying to stand out. I know we've definitely experienced that in Chicago, where again, you go back 10 years, I mean, I, as a biotech entrepreneur, I was kind of a, a weird guy in, in Chicago. Yeah. Nobody really understood that, you yeah, know, the kids totally. football games and soccer games right. and stuff, you'd have to explain what you did. Today is different, you know, I, I, and I give a lot of credit to, you know, Rahm Emanuel yep. put a lot of emphasis yep, sure. around tech and biotech as well. And I think that's why we're in a position where each year, we're growing steadily and, and greater critical mass and momentum is happening. All right. So speaking of, of Rahm and Chicago politics, the mayoral runoff is on April 4th. And I know you're not a Chicago resident, you're a Downers Grove resident, Correct. but obviously, like you just said, mm -hmm. who's in power in Chicago matters a lot to your work. Mm -hmm. um, who do you think will win? Who do you think should win? And what do you think, like, what went wrong in the last four years? And, and what's your, if, if, if the new mayor, whether it's Vallis or Johnson, called you and said, okay, John, give me some advice as to how to turn the city around, what, what would you tell him? Well, I think the emphasis around being pro-business is really important. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we, we had the benefit of working closely with um, Mayor Lightfoot and really credit her for also being a champion for and welcoming, um, you know, biotech and, and tech. I think the challenges that the city incurred, you know, are, are well publicized. So don't need to get, get into those. But I think that the 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 focus around the next uh, several years has to be blocking and tackling, and that is creating the conditions, the basic conditions, where companies uh, and their employees feel safe. And so, to that end, I believe that likely Paul Vallis will yeah. win. And so my my hat is just on the always looking at through the lens, since I'm not, I don't have a vote, but my my advice to that new mayor coming in would be, 
obviously prioritize safety, but in doing that, you're creating conditions so you can repower the uh, very important um, energy that goes with the business sector. Right. And look, it's hard to know exactly what Valance's underlying belief system is. Johnson seems much more in the traditional kind of socialist mold of it. But look, I I would argue, and I, I suspect you would agree, that if a mayor can deliver a product where the city is clean and safe and well run and it has okay schools and the parks are nice and whatever else, that's all you really need, right? You don't need the mayor to recreate society. You need the mayor to give mm-hmm. entrepreneurs like you, um, you know, uh, just all kinds of people, whether it's artists or corporate leaders or academic or whatever it is to say, I want to be in this place. Yes. And then they will create the things that actually make the city great and create jobs and wealth and taxes and opportunity and everything else. Well, I couldn't agree more. We're on the same page. I agree. It's that getting back to my words, you know, creating the conditions. You know, you can't expect government to really, you know, I mean, as an entrepreneur, I just want a place where we're going to be able to attract and retain the best talent. And right. that pertains to really anybody in any kind of, you know, uh, endeavor that you're trying to build something. And and frankly, again, the city constantly needs to be building. What is it building toward? And how is it reinventing itself? And that's why, again, I I do, I will certainly talk to whoever the new mayor is and try to make sure that they understand the opportunity that goes into the momentum that's been seen in in biotech and how it can have outsized economic impact um, in a given city. Given that labs are sort of very specific capital in-person places, do you have sort of a work from home issue where people in your industry now want to stay home? You're like, no, I really need you in the lab. Or is it just something that just isn't really a thing in biotech? Well, it's funny. I mean, except for the acute, you know, lockdown phase, you know, labs kind of never went down. I mean, the people that work in the lab have been working, you know, with, you know, (laughs) through the, through and following the pandemic. And so the work, uh, the work never really changed. Um, And we certainly saw that in building uh, a portal. I mean, I, started portal a week before the lockdown. So it didn't seem to be a great time to be getting underway. But as it turned out, you know, there's there were were a lot of people that needed to get into the lab to do their work. And again, the reason is that the type of work that these individuals are doing are chemistry and biology. It's it's work you need special equipment for instruments. Zoom, and, Zoom and is not sufficient. It, Zoom just doesn't work. So, yeah. and you can't, you know, run a, you know, a, a, a reaction in your bathtub at home, right? So you got to do it in an environment that's conducive to that. So we've benefited from, in many respects, or have had a muted challenge as it relates to how do we get people back to the office? They kind of never left because the lab is needed. Right. Now, there are many different functions in a biotech company. Not everybody's working in a hood, you know, running reactions or, or doing assays. Um, and so remote has enabled, you know, more uh, productivity uh, across the lab because people can, you know, be able to come in and check experiments and work at different hours of the day. So I think it's elongated the workday. It's more of a 24-7 type environment. So as the employer, it's better for you. Yeah, it is. And, yeah. and I also think that, you know, the dynamic back to, you know, our thesis from an investment perspective and trying to build a really valuable portfolio the biotechnology company that we're seeing now is less constrained uh, in terms of where it is. Oftentimes, people would say, well, you can only build a biotech company in Boston because they've got all the CEO talent there. And that was generally true. If you needed that CEO to be in the office, then you needed to be in Boston to be able to attract that talent. Right. Well, COVID really accelerated this distribution of professional talent. So people like the chief medical officers, chief scientific officers, chief technical officers, CFOs, 
you know, are populating these companies and are working in remotely all the time because they don't need to be in the lab. So that is actually liberated another reason for why these um, ecosystems and a forward looking basis will benefit yeah. because they can, you know, they can have the core scientific team in the lab working and then a CMO in Naples, Florida that, you know, has done it three times before that can work remotely. Right. Um, you have a podcast. What is it? I do. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, for the last year and a half, uh, every, every two weeks we drop a, a podcast called Lab Rats to Unicorns. And the focus is trying to tell the story of the uh, individual behind uh, the company and uh, the discoveries. So trying to, to be less technical, uh, also trying to, you know, demonstrate that, you know, the journeys that these individuals have and how they got started um, should open up access to a lot of people that may not have identified with biotech that would say, oh, if that person's doing that, I, I could probably do that too. Yeah. So, and who, it's who, gotten really who, good. Who are kind of your favorite examples of that? Um, let's see. I mean, you know, I've had some great conversations with uh, folks like, uh, I mentioned Dennis Leota, you yeah. know, professor at Emory. Uh, Omar Anand, he's a professor at uh, Georgia Tech. Um, you know, we've got people like uh, John Rogers, uh, prolific entrepreneur, scientist at Northwestern, uh, Dr. Shana Kelly, um, the new head of the Chan Zuckerberg uh, Biohub in Chicago, yep. very inspirational. These are people that have cranked out several companies. And uh, but you, when you hear their early stories, what got them yeah. on the path? There are people like well, that's like the me fun thing, <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. Right. It's like what are the things yeah. that you know that that kind of broke certain ways? What are some risks yeah. that they took? Some things that paid off? Some failures they yeah. overcame? All of that. Yeah. Um, how do people learn more about Portal overall? Well, we've got a website, you know, okay. portalinnovations.com. Um, you know, we're active, you know, on social media. Um, I've mentioned the the podcast as well. And yeah, I guess one last other point too is just what, what I've always enjoyed personally on my own journey with a business background by training is just the scientist, the person, and the interesting elements of what make them who they are. Being in the lab, um, you know, I was... My, my journey began really when I graduated, I jumped right into entrepreneurship. My brother, Mike, is 12 years older. He's a medicinal chemist. So we started the first couple companies together. And so it's through those interactions, the personal interactions, where the cool stuff happens. And right. the mean cool meaning new drugs get discovered. Yeah, that ultimately th things that are can cure yeah, extremely meaningful someday, for society. Yeah, exactly. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, John, thanks so much for joining us. It's a great podcast, and I look forward to having you back on. Great being with you. Thanks for the time. Great.